Diving into Numbers chapter 6, and as is typical for me, I uh, think I'm going to do 5 through 10, and then I just do chapter 5, and then we'll do 6 and beyond, and we're just going to do 6. And uh, we're zeroing in on 6 for a reason, and that's because it is the idea of a Nazarite vow, and we've been talking about that a lot. So Sunday mornings, we're in Judges, and we've seen Samson. Uh, Samuel, most likely, his commitment was a Nazarite-type vow as well. And so we're seeing this kind of come up. If you need another paper that kind of walks you through numbers, we have copies up here as well. So we're going to be walking through um, the Nazarite vow, and it comes and placed in numbers here on purpose. It's God didn't accidentally place anything in Scripture. When we get to chapter 7 through most of 9, almost into 10, (coughs) we're going to go back and look at something that took place in Exodus that Leviticus talked about. But we're going to get details from numbers that relate to what we're talking about in numbers. And so as we've walked through this book so far, we've seen the nations numbered. Uh, We've seen um, the Levites set aside for the Lord's service. And we're going to see more of that before we head out into the desert. Uh, We've seen the cleanup preparations that were made. Chapter 5, they were cleaning up. This This was not new rules. This was These were reminders saying, hey, we're getting ready to go on a journey, so let's follow through on what God has said. Let's be cognitive. Let's be active in recognizing God's presence, and recognizing God's presence is recognizing God's holiness. If you're reading in the Old Testament, especially when you're reading in these first books of the Bible, you you have to zero in on, on the idea of God and holiness. You can't miss this idea. And Numbers is really zeroing in yet again on this and trying to help us understand in the daily walk, God's presence, which means God's holiness, is among God's people. And then we have to make sure we understand that God being omnipresent is also here, and we need to recognize His presence and recognize him for who he is, which he is holy. It's one of those characteristics that, that kind of supersedes almost all the others. He has, God is love, but it's a holy love. And God is fair, but it's a holy fairness. Holiness ties into who God is. And so when we're called to holiness of being set apart, we're called into understanding who God is. And so we have that cleanliness, and, and they fixated on a, a few components of cleanliness. External which was leper, um, internal problems and discharges. And then we started dealing with a lot of uh, community problems, resolution that took place there. And then we dealt with husband and wives and issues that were there. And there's quite a bit on that because we understand we we don't want to have disunity in this group of people. We mentioned it last week. There's about 2 million plus people and they have a very specific objective and calling. God has called his people to move from where they are And to go into the promised land, that's what's going to take place. And so they've walked through these requirements, and they need to understand that God is amongst them, and it's a holy God. They need to be prepared to be unified with brother, sister, husband, wife in the community, thus the resolution. And we talked a little about it. Some of these wrongs would have gone all the way back into Egypt because you were resolving some of the wrongs. If that person wasn't alive, you give it to their next of kin. If there's no next of kin, you need to give it to the priest. In other words, we're tracing back. We are resolving where we have wronged our people, wronged the community. And then obviously when we get into the family unit. So now we have dove into this concept. And before we move to 
the tabernacle. And we're about to go through equality with the tribes. We're about to see the tribes in chapter 7 give the exact same gift to God that every other tribe gives. And, and we find it redundant because we have no patience in our culture. We find the repetitiveness. We're like, oh, come on, God, summarize this for crying out loud. Do you need to really waste my time reading it again? And that's because we read it from a Western culture. There is joy in the repetitive nature if you go to the Eastern culture. They're, they're seeing this repetitiveness as building momentum and building joy and building participation. And we need to read it that way. And we're watching how God is going to uh, um, furnish his tabernacle, how everyone was committed to it. We watch this unified group moving forward. But before we get there, we, we dive into this chapter about being individually set apart. And this chapter jumps out to me. I think part of it's because I've been reading about the Nazarite vow, and I start reading about the reality, you know, how nasty was Samson's hair, if you think about that for a minute. He never cut it. Um, and just think of how long that would grow, and, and people love to depict it shoulder length and permed. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think it's that way. I mean, to clean it would take a whole army. Uh, I'm sure he just bundled it up, and, and uh, there's quite a hairdo there. Uh, and I just think about this idea, and, and here's the other thing I want us to see, because chapter 6 is individually set apart. We have been focused on unity, community, having this whole group move together, and then in Numbers we get this really fascinating chapter, and I think it's fascinating to the church today, uh, very specifically because this was something that every Israelite could participate in. We've seen that only Levites can be involved in the Lord's work at the tabernacle. We know only the high priest can do certain things. And we know that Kohathites would move the articles. And we know that the Gershonites were going to move the heavy beams. And the Marathites, and I'm probably mispronouncing, but we'll go with it. Um, they're going to move the curtains. And, and we're about to see in seven and beyond uh, certain gifts given to these groups for moving things. You're going to notice that the Kohathites, they don't get wagons and they don't get animals to help move stuff. Why? Because they're not supposed to move it on a cart. They have to move it by hand. But the Levites that had to move the heavy stuff are going to get carts and animals, and we're going to see all that. But see, those guys had a special job. They were the only ones that could do that. Judah led. That's from Juba. You're going to be the first tribe out, and, and everyone's placed where they need to be. And there's, so everyone had their job and their function. And we come to chapter 6, and any Israelite, male or female, could be involved in, a, in what I list as a unique, I went too far, which is I tend to do. So a unique yet open opportunity. The Nazarite vow is very unique, but one of its unique characteristics is the fact that anyone could take it for any length of time. But it signified this set-apart holiness to God. And, and it's going to have a picture of dedication and commitment that I think the church today should replicate in principle. That, that I want to challenge us as we walk through the Nazarite vow to, to try to think how in the world do we individually set ourselves apart and we watch how God works with his people and how he gives them this. And I use the word opportunity for a reason because it was an opportunity. It was not mandated. This was not coerced. There was not one time in your life that you had to do it. Hey, you're 18. It's time to join the draft. 
It's not, it's time to take your Nazarite vow. It is an opportunity that jumps up. And so we're going to see this kind of come out here. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. And I want you to just get a picture of what's being painted here of a unique yet open opportunity that God calls us to. And I, I put here, I want you to see in it a wake-up call to what God was giving his people an opportunity to do. And I want you to see this in mind that, that the hardest or the most expensive part of this vow actually takes place at the end. And it's quite costly. And there's no adjustment for economic standing. There's actually more that can be given, not less. But I want us just to kind of see the details. And we'll look at what they're set apart to. And then kind of think a little bit out loud on, on how we can understand it and understand who was doing this and the significance behind it. So ver- chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. And that's a very detailed way of saying you can touch nothing from the vine, nothing at all in any form or fashion. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. Just in case you're wondering if you can lick the outside of it, you can't. Leave it alone. All the days of the vow of the separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separated himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separated himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. And that's referring to a human body. And just so you understand, because a lot of times people look at Samson, they say, man, he touched a lion that was dead. One, there's no indication that he touched the lion after it was dead because the honey was in the lion. He reached in and grabbed the honey. Two, of course he touched a dead lion. He killed it. Same as the priests. Every animal they killed, they would have come contact with a dead animal, every single offering. And so dead body is referring and implying dead human body. And then he gets detailed. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because this consecration of his God is upon his head all the days of his separation. He is holy unto the Lord. And I don't want us to miss something because we fixate on what a Nazarite does not do. He's separated from, from, from. But all woven through those eight verses, starting in chapter 2, ending in verse 8, he's separated unto the Lord. He's separated from this, not from a legalistic standpoint. That's where legalism kind of grabs hold. Don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And if you're, you're a good person, you won't do that and you won't do this. It has no bearing on this. He's separated from something so that he can be, she can be, that's what we start off, unto the Lord, can be specifically directed, and we're going to see how that takes place. So what do you see? Nothing from the vine, nothing touching the head, no razor, and nothing near the dead, no context. So we'll look a little closer at nothing from the vine. Now, here's what we have to understand about the product of the vine. It was considered a luxury, not that it was only for certain people, but it was considered the good thing in life. 
It's think of the food that makes you smile, that makes you relax, that says, hey, this is what I need. And most of you are sipping coffee right now, and so we know what the, the fruit of the vine is for us, right? I drink tea. That's my comfort. This is what I do. This, this is, I can go without food if I have tea. I never do, but I can. I can. I can do it. Um, but I, I really will miss my tea. It is luxury, and I want us to understand something. It is not considered sinful. The fruit of the vine is not sinful. All through the Old Testament, they're eating and drinking from the fruit of the vine. It represented what was bonus and depicted living the good life. So foregoing consumption meant setting aside the luxury in life, setting aside the ease of life. What, what is, you know, you're drinking water or you're going to have fruit of the vine. There's not many other options. I don't think they were drinking olive oil. I don't know if you've ever drank olive oil. You, you don't want to repeat it, you know. Um, this is setting aside the ease for the benefits of focusing on the eternal. Setting aside what we want, what is okay, what is permissible, what is good, what God has given us, what God has blessed us with. I mean, you're offering drink offerings. You're, you're, you have harvest of vine. You're setting that aside. But remember, you're setting aside something unto the Lord. So I want us to take a little moment to process some of this and tie it a bit to the day. Because I think when I used to see the Nazarite vow, I, I thought of some long-haired, stinky individual that seems a little crazy. And I would say, good for them. I'm going to close tonight with a question for everyone. Do you think, if you were an Israelite living at this time, that you would have taken a Nazarite vow? And then I want you to think, why not? And then if you think you would have, then I'm going to prod you forward to think, how does it look today? Because we tend to just isolate this. John the Baptist, same kind of concept, right? And people thought he was crazy. And it's not, and it's understanding what they're doing. And so kind of processing, and I'm going to ask some questions. And uh, I know the questions can be, um, can get close to toes. Is that fair to say? So I'm going to ask your permission to kind of wander to your toes a little bit when I ask a question. Wine and the vine and the grape juice and the dry grapes and the fresh grapes and all the grape things represent the luxury and ease, the goodness, the fun, the benefit of life. So I put a question. How much time is spent pursuing hobbies? Now, it's not wrong. It's not sinful. But think about that for a second. What is your interest? What is your hobby? What is your passion? And again, remember, not sinful. And then I want to ask this next question. What do you give up for the pursuit of your hobby or activity? And again, not making hobbies bad. But I want you to recognize if you're looking at them at a unique yet open opportunity, nothing wrong with the fruit of the vine at all. But by setting it aside, they're able to focus. They're, they're putting it in its box. And actually, they're putting it in a box and taping the top this time. And then how do, you, how do we apply that to today? And the answer is not just that you're not going to drink grape juice or eat grapes. It's not what we're talking about. But I, I'm trying to touch on what's good in life, what's fun in life, 
what the goal is in life. And I want you to see how placing them in context can be a benefit to you spiritually. Because by what they did, it changed what they did. Samson didn't break his Nazarite vow at his own party, which was a Philistine drinking party. He didn't partake. Might be why he could give a riddle that no one else understood. That seems fairly simple to us. Maybe not. But I want us to see a little bit what, what that looks like. Because he's going to set apart something. And I put here, what are some other things that we focus on today that maybe a pause or reduction from it would be spiritually healthy? What, what, and this is, should get personal for everyone because everyone's, you know, I'm going to throw out the thing I'm not interested in, right? <laughs> well, I'm kind of interested in football, so I'll give up football. And then everything will be fine. And then someone else is saying, wait a second, give up football. My oldest son has now become a football fanatic. We're going to watch any and every game. I don't know why. It used to be he'd watch his team. Now, any, if you're throwing a football, he's watching and listening to stats and regurgitating the stats and all that it means. But that's one because that's football season. But I guarantee you that if I go around the room, there's an interest here. And if you're honest with yourself, by pausing or reducing that, it would be spiritually healthy. That was the goal of letting go of the luxury, is saying, I'm going to set aside the temporal to get a focus. And, and I hope you can recognize that if you do that, then you start getting this in perspective and it helps us see what's going on. I put here, don't list the things that are already related to serving God. Like, well, I'll set aside going to church because that's, you know, taking up too much. That's not, that's not the idea. But the idea is to confront us where we have luxury. What is the luxury? And what can be set aside? What's the hobby? What's the thing that trumps worship? What's the thing that trumps studying God's Word? What distracts you from studying God's Word? What distracts you from what needs to be done? And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, because that's what we do, right? Our defense goes up. It's not bad, right? Neither was the fruit of the vine. But the idea of this was to get focused in unto the Lord Now, the fact is, setting aside a cultural luxury staple makes for conversation. When you're the only guy not drinking the fruit of the vine, everyone's like, what's wrong with you, man? The water doesn't taste that good. What's happening? Something's different. And it says you have a different perspective, which is going to lead to this next visual thing. So the the setting aside of a luxury is going to cause communication. It's going to let people know that you've set something aside that is given by God a gift, but you're going to set it aside because you're going to focus in on being unto the Lord. And it's going to cause communication. It's going to be, hey, that's, that's not normal. That's not what we do. And now we're going to get to nothing touching the head. And the custom of the day was to maintain your hair, the locks. It was not to just let it grow unattended. And so if somebody just grows it out unattended... That's going to be different, right? They're going to stand out from everyone else. And what is it telling everyone? Because everyone knew the Naz- they're going to know what the Nazarite vow is. So if I come in and I don't drink fruit of the vine and I, I have my hair growing out, and I don't, we always assume the second you take the vow that you suddenly have dreadlocks down to your knees. Right? It takes some time, and, and who knows how long your vow was for. But we're going to start getting a picture of somebody who's set apart. Someone who says, I've set aside my right 
for God. And the hair on top of this, and this helps with the culture, was often regarded and was regarded as a special anointing or crown from the Lord, which is returned to God, offered back to him at the close of the vow. And as a side note, the pagans would cut their hair and offer it to their gods as well. And I always, you know, most people want to say, look, Israel's copying the pagans. Well, who came first, God or pagans? And I would say God came first. So who's copying who? Well, yeah, it's going to be the pagans copying God and taking their hair and making it something they give to their gods because the Nazarite is going to give their hair or commit that. And so the set-apart nature of my hair, and mine's falling out, so not the Nazarite idea, um, but if I'm growing it out, it's, I'm set apart to God. This is his anointing, his, his setting apart, and then I'm going to shave my hair off, and I'm going to offer it to God very clearly, giving it back to him. It's his crown on my head that I then offer back to him when the vow is over, and the world has polluted it. The pagans are doing this hair thing and offering it to their gods, and it's part of what they're doing, polluting what God has given them to do. Now, I'm not saying that we find the oddest hairstyle or fashion and then stand out like crazy lunatics. Some of you are doing a good job of that, but, you know, that's not the goal that we're setting for ourselves. But, but what are some of the ways that we do distinctively stand apart from the world? And I'm going to list a few. Morality. We talk about this for our daughters, right? There's the purity rings, and we think 15, 16, 12, and we're all talking about it. But morality is a very distinct characteristic of us, of God's people, that we're going to stand apart. And it's for all of us. I'm saying it's not just the teenagers. It's supposed to permeate our culture. It's supposed to come out in what and how we are. I put another one that you look different on, your mouth. Do we have seasoned speech? How am I responding to the person who cuts me off? Do you know that when you're yelling in your car, people know you're yelling in your car? It's, it's obvious. I know that because I was yelling in my car once, and Heather's like, what are you yelling at? I'm like, you're not in the car with me. I can't get in trouble for that, you know. But that's, that's not the case. How, how are we? How are we in our response to there? I put the other one, uh, how is our motivation? What is driving our life and behavior? The world's motivation is obvious, is it not? We see its perversion. We see its immorality. We see it in their mouth, how they talk, how they respond, the self-centeredness, the... the, the the, the, it's just ugliness, the depravity of sin. How do you stand out from that? Well, I guarantee you, if your morality is obvious, not judgmental morality, but legit, I'm going to be different because of who God is. And my mouth is different. It's seasoned because of who God is. And I'm his child. And my motivation is different because of who God is. And my motivation is him. And it's not just there because I have a legal check mark to, to, oh, I did my box, check, 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 check. I'm a good Christian. But instead, my motivation is I love the, the almighty God, the one who has redeemed my soul from the gates and punishment of hell 
the punishment of sin, if that my motivation is to serve him out of love, to serve him, to glorify his name, that is going to look distinct in this world. And then the restrictions close <coughs> with nothing near the dead. And, and I put here, isn't death one of life's emergencies? Losing a loved one is an emergency, right? It strikes home. It's dear. It's difficult. And what happens with death? Ecclesiastes says we, more, we learn more in the house of mourning than the house of mirth. Because what do we see in death? What are the ways? Yeah, mortality. We see what else? Yeah. We see what Genesis predicted, right? We will all what? And why do we die? And fall short of the glory of God. Death is the most blatant reminder of the fact that we're not holy. That we've sinned. That we've fallen short. And so in the Nazarite vow, we're asked to distance from this. Why? Because we are connected to who? Who is what? Life. God is life. Death is sin. And it's a distance from the consequence of sin. I put here all of these obvious differences are from the normal existence. And so what does a Nazarite vow get to, this unique yet open opportunity? What it does is it invades your life, your daily life. It's not something you do once in a while. It's something you do every minute of the day. When don't you cut your hair? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. When don't you contact the dead? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. When don't you drink from the vine, eat from the vine, touch the vine, lick the vine, whatever you can do, nothing can touch your lips. When? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You are set apart in the everything of life. It's the opposite of legalism, by the way. <laughs> legalism is for show for pretense. It's not done from the right motivation. And this is driving us to recognize, hey, we are set apart to God. The, the restrictions and, and the things, it likens us to the priests and Levites. And actually, it goes beyond a normal priest setup. It's actually more like the high priests. When we see the offerings at the end, it gets as close to what the high priest gives when he's consecrated as anything else is. It spoke beyond the restrictions, though, the separation from things, again, remind you, separated unto the Lord. The point of the Nazarite vow was communion with God. It was prioritizing God. It was prioritizing God's purpose. That's the Nazarite vow. God is put clearly and definitively first above everything. Nothing else gets close to God. And that's why I rewind through the daily life and then I get to our hobbies, interests, function, focus, all those things. And, and, and again, let it get close to the toes or let it step on the toes. God is to be obviously first. If you have to explain to someone that you put God first, then you're not putting God first like God wants to be put first. If it takes a reasoning, it's not obvious. The Nazarite vow set an obvious set-apart nature. And I put here, how many of us today could be accused 
of being truly set apart. How many of us would have to convince somebody that we're set apart? I'm not saying you have to convince them you're a Christian. They put that together when you walk through church. They're going to assume you're a Christian. The assumption that everyone makes outside of this is that all Americans are Christians. I'm talking about who here, how many of us could be accused of being set apart? And it's obvious, it's clear that, that God's first. The Nazarite vow, that's what it talks about. But then there's some practicality to this that, that speaks to the weight of it. Because we get to this next part, and, and it answers this question. What happens when someone dies right next to you, or you touch a dead body? Or you put grapes in your mouth on accident. What happens when your commitment is waylaid accidentally? It's not like you can slip up on purpose accidentally. Well, we see what I put as a strict yet understandable fulfillment. I call this the renewal. 9 through 12. And I just want you to realize you've taken a Nazarite vow. You've not had fruit of the vine. You've not cut your hair. You've not been near the dead. Someone drops dead beside you. You accidentally touch a dead body. Uh, you, you somehow or the other maybe uh, drink out of the wrong jug. Uh, whatever it may be that happens. And, it's, and, and he relates to more people dying next to you quickly. In other words, most of the other ones can be avoided by being aware of your circumstances. It says, If any man die very suddenly by him, and he hath defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall he save, shave it, and on the eighth day he shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. <coughs> and the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make an atonement for him for that he sinned by the dead and shall hallow his head that same day. And you might say, wait a second, someone dropped dead beside him. How is that his fault? And I want you to understand, it is implying to us how holy the Nazarite vow was. That God has been defrauded of something just because someone died right next to you and caused that to happen. It goes on, and he shall consecrate in the Lord the days of his separation and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering but the days that were before shall be lost because his separation was defiled you pay uh, with an offering the cost of renewal the, the reconsecration of defiled speaks to the exceptional holiness of the nazarite vow it was not taken lightly and the defilement highlights the depravity of this world it is acknowledging the reality of sin in this world well, that's not fair. He, she has separated themselves for seven months of an eight-month commitment. It's not right. And then they have to bring the offering, which would have been a poor man's offering or woman's offering, to there for, for a sin offering and a burnt offering. And then a lamb, which was expensive, was brought as an offering of trespass. And I put in here, holiness is not cheap. And at no point was God wanting this to be an easy out. I put here as a note, I'm sure we don't understand it correctly, right? As a church today, the true cost of holiness. We don't value it as they would have understood it from a Nazarite vow standpoint. Because let's be honest, our mindset is that the sacrifice of living would have been enough for starting the vow over. Someone died next to me. Ah, it stinks. I got to start over. 
And God says, no, you have to offer a sin offering and a burnt offering and a trespass offering. You have to shave your head again. you got a week to wait. You shave it the eighth day. You offer it, and then you start over. And what is our mindset? I've done enough to go start over. And that's enough, God. That's sufficient, God. Why does God give this turtle dove offering and why do they have to offer a lamb and then they restart and we're about to see when they end the vow it's quite expensive why holiness is not cheap it's not trite it involves more thought than a reset or do-over switch i put down it's not to be treated like the staples that was easy button okay bummer i'll start over again god No. The depravity of this world has tainted the value made. You have a sin offering and you have a burnt offering and you have a trespass offering. And we treat sin lightly. And the Nazarite who has, out of no power of their own, no control of their own, someone dies right next to them, and they offer that. Why? To understand the holiness of God. To understand the weight that is in there. It's a vow that changed your daily life. It's a costly and understood that holiness comes at a cost, that it's not cheap. And then we come to the end of it, and I put a costly yet needed close. And, and we're running a little short on time, so I'm going to kind of summarize 13 through 21. Basically, you go back to Leviticus and Exodus where they list all the sacrifices you could give. And you read how a high priest is consecrated. The high priest needed two bowls. That's the only thing you're not going to see here. Everything else, if you go to Leviticus 8 or Exodus 29, slightly less costly, but in implication, all the offerings are offered. The offerings given bear a striking resemblance to the priest's consecration. They are offering every type of offering And I want you to realize something. There is no adjusted amount. It's not if you're poor, you offer turtle doves. But if you have more money, offer a lamb. And if you have even more money, offer a bull. It is the exact same for every Nazarite vow. Before you took the vow, you knew that the end of the vow ended with a quite pricey gift offering to God. One could only give more, which is listed there. It says something this, um, this is the law of the Nazarite who hath vowed and of his offering unto the Lord for his separation beside that that his hand shall get according to the vow which he vowed, so he must do after the law of the separation. In other words, you have to do everything that's listed there, multiple lambs, multiple grain offerings. You're going to shave your head. You're going to burn your hair on the altar very carefully, actually, so it is not misused. Every offering imaginable comes down to right here. They're going to give that offering. The only thing you could do is more. That's the alternative. And we gather from this a level of commitment and cost that was associated with the Nazarite vow. And again, it comes down to this. A Nazarite vow had the weight of holiness behind it. There was no trite nature to this. This was no casual thing. You know what? I'm going to check off that Nazarite vow thing. I'm going to do it for a week. Great. You might do it for a week. And then you're going to offer all these offerings at the end of it. Everyone must close with this offering every single time. 
And it's a high note. There is importance and weight to this vow. And I'm going to rewind us all the way back to the beginning. We've been talking community. We've been talking the people of Israel. We've been talking functioning as a whole. How we're, and we're going to go right back to it. But here in chapter 6, we get this very individual, set-apart nature for any Israelite. An open opportunity for anyone. Unique, but open opportunity. Amos links the Nazarite vow with the prophets. Here in Numbers, it, it, you, you see the invocation to the priest. And so in the Old Testament record, it is associated with prophets and priests. God had a path for all who desired to publicly be set apart unto him. You didn't say, man, I wish I was a Levite so I could serve at the tabernacle. But I'm not, so I can't. What does God give you? He gave you an opportunity, unique but open opportunity. The question for every Israelite is not could you do this, but would you do this? Will you? Not can you. You all can, but will you? You're not restricted by gender, by tribal affiliation. This is something you could do. And I put, let's link it to every believer. What restricts any believer from being set apart in this way, in a unique way? So I'm going to set apart some of the luxury of life. I'm going to set apart some of the, some of the, the being unique. Well, I don't want to look like I'm weird. If I talk like that, I'll be ostracized. You're right. You would be. People went out to see John the Baptist because he, he, was, he was different. They listened to him, but they thought he was odd. People thought Moses was odd. People thought Paul was odd. People thought Jesus was odd. It was set apart. It's different. And we have that question as we come in. Are we God's people? Are we peculiar? And not weird. Not, not oh, that's an odd duck, right? It's peculiar as in set apart, unique to him. And you see this question that God presents to his people, and we watch in the nation of Israel as we're walking through. Now, the chapter ends with, I listed a, a beautiful blessing from God. The ironic blessing. Now, the background, and, and it's important to note this, because sometimes we tend to think we're saying it to God or petitioning God for it. This is God speaking to his people Moses is to tell Aaron to tell the people. And remember from Leviticus, the priests represented God to the people. And then he would also represent the people to God. And so God is speaking. He says to Moses to tell Aaron, this is what I want you to say to my people. His words, his blessing. Number 6, 22 through 27. And I want to read this one. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, on this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The who? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. And there's three lines in this blessing, and they each contain two verbs that build on each other or explain each other. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance unto thee, and give thee peace, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. 
And as one writer notes, it's happiness and security, grace and favor, peace of heart, if they put the Lord's name over their lives. In other words, how are you known? What is the stamp on you? How are you branded? Another notes that we see the preservation in one's daily life, God's face shining points to his complete favor. The lifting up of God's face over his people speaks to his peace that would permeate their existence. Its blessing is echoed in the Psalms, specifically in Psalm 67 and 121. And I wanted to dive in briefly to the three statements containing the two verbs. He, God, speaking of God, he will bless and keep, shine and be gracious, lift up, and give peace. What do we see? First, we see the protection of God. He will bless you and keep you, guard you, hedge around you. That's what he's saying. We see the favor of God. He's bringing his light to their life and circumstances. He is going to shine and that's be gracious. And so he is going to come into life circumstances And then we see the attention of God. When he lifts up his countenance to you, it is is not the same as his face shining upon you. It's going another round deeper than that. This is God's attentive involvement. And how is it described? Peace. He gives salvation. He gives the prosperity. He's the one that's going to influence their life. It closes with the words, I will bless them. And in English, we have a hard time. The only way I can emphasize I is to do what? I will bless them. That's how it is in Hebrew. We read, I will bless them because that's how we would read in English. The Hebrew makes it very clear. God closes this with, I will bless them. Not Aaron, not Moses, not anyone else. God alone will be the one. It is distinctively and only God who brings blessing. That's what the end is. I will bless them and no one else. And then I just thought briefly of some questions. Do we desire this blessing in our lives? The reality of it. We love the outside. Everyone quotes it. Everyone. Oh, that God's face will shine upon me. That he will lift up his countenance. Okay, you know what you're asking for? His involvement. He's involved either way, but you're actually wanting it. See, I'm afraid we would rather God be more removed and only come in when life gets too messy for us. That's not this blessing. This blessing instead speaks to his intricate involvement in our lives because we need it. It's not meant to belittle. It's meant to comfort his true children but it would infuriate his enemies (coughs) because we are dependent upon him. He is involved in the all of life. And that means we are not our own self-sufficient beings and we really have no right or ability to say we are. But this blessing, if you are truly his, warms your heart. He's involved in your circumstances. That's his favor, his graciousness. He is involved in the the intricacies of life. And if you just pause for a second, you know you've seen that blessing. 
It's the things you don't even want to mention that, that happen. It's not because you're embarrassed about them, because you wonder, does God even bother with this problem of mine? Does he even stoop to this? And he says that he's involved in it. He brings his graciousness into the normalcy of life. The simplicity, and you can see that as his child if you care about it. And then the, the final one is that he says, I lift up my countenance. I am involved in your life in an intricate way. So I'll mention the close to this chapter as I mentioned at the beginning. And it's not so much a think of an action step as it is to prod us all to think and a little bit of self-examination. So here it goes. Do you think if you lived then, you would ever have taken a Nazarite vow? I ask that question because when I read about the Nazarite vow, I know what I think in my head of what I would do. And it's no. And then I have to ask myself, why not? Why wouldn't I? Because it's easy to say, well, I ain't doing that. I can't even go on a diet. How could I get off of the luxuries of life? I can't grow hair anyway. Thanks to the genetics from my parents. <laughs> Gotta blame somebody, right? <laughs> but then, then I ask, I put here, and be honest with yourself. So if not, why not? Why not? We understand what it's for. And then if you said yes, how would that play out today? Because no, I'm out. I'm confronted with I won't let something go for God. I won't, I, won't, I won't set aside this so that I can have a more zeroed focus. I want to just life and, and understand that this vow would help me recognize where I'm off course, where I've over-focused. I'm consumed with my career I know where my focus would be, multiplying sheep, goats, and whatever else you can do to make money, right? I, I, know, about, I know about myself, exactly what I'd be. I'd also be the guy that took too much manna, I think. So it, it's, but why not? Well, I wouldn't let go of my stuff to, to be focused in. I, w- I will be so zeroed in on my thing that I can't let go. And th- this, is, this vow breaks that. And then if you say, yeah, I would do it, well, good, do it. Apply it. How would that look today? And then I put here as a second question, do you think that we as his church truly desire his blessing as articulated and involved as it's seen in the ironic blessing? Not the little benediction that makes us all feel fuzzy, right? Oh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. We almost memorize it, right? But we don't realize what it's saying even. He's our guard. Oh, we like that. He will be gracious to me, but that means he's, he's shining into my life circumstances. Well, we like it on the, on the positive, not the, not the convicting side. And the last one is very involved. When he lifts up his countenance, he is getting into your business. I didn't bring it with me, but there was a, the Talamund has a expansion, not expanding on God's word, but like an ex- explanation in society. And it talks about God being involved in business and keep the demons of the day and night out. And it's literally realizing the truth of the blessing. It's, it's from their time frame saying, God be involved in all of what we do. And so it shapes who we are and how we respond to everything in life. And then you have to ask, is his church today truly desiring the ironic blessing, or do we just want parts of it that make us feel fuzzy inside? Or do we desire the depth of what's there? I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll be dismissed.
Heavenly Father, I think what opportunity we have to dive in and study your word. I hope that as we read numbers and we understand uh, what you were asking of the nation of Israel, your chosen people, as we see this very unique chapter that it's tucked within this whole idea of community, we, we shift in the next chapter right back to community. But there in the middle of preparing to go on a journey is a Nazarite vow. It's the opportunity to set aside everything, to be set apart for you, to be unique unto you. In the ease and good of life, walking through the visual representation of who we are and being set apart, and even in, in what depicts the wages of sin. And help us to be confronted by what you offer there to the nation of Israel, every individual, to be unique, to be set aside in that way, and, and convict our hearts to be your church today and apply the set-apart nature of the Nazarite vow to, to drive us to be unique for you in that way, to be set unto you uh, in our life and our actions and our hobbies and the everything that takes place. And then help us to be confronted by your blessing, to recognize how deep it goes from guarding to involved in the circumstances, to involved in the intricate details and business and decisions and thoughts that we may have, that your blessing permeates as we set your name upon us that our identity is Christ, and that's what you're calling for. From, from all the way back then to now in the church age, you're calling for your name on your people, and that is their identity. As John the Baptist says, I must decrease so that he can increase. It is his glory. It's your glory. Help us to be convicted of that as we see that he was calling, you were calling your people Israel uh, to the same uh, focus the same identity in your precious and holy name. Amen.